Afghan farmers watering their crops came upon this, an anti-tank mine buried for decades. Landmines remain an everyday threat, especially in southern Afghanistan, where they kill or injure nearly 90 people a month. A tractor hit this mine, but it didn't detonate. That's the deminer's job now. About two kilometers up the road, they're clearing mines from the village of Pasab. To do it as quickly as possible, machines till the earth, then deminers check the soil for explosives. This was once a front line. Almost anywhere fighters have been, there could be mines too. And they planted during the fighting. So in different villages, in different houses, uh, when uh, conflict ends, people return back to their villages. It's uh, inside their houses, orchards, streets, and even, Hello, uh, and welcome to yet another episode. You psyched me out. Of the dump cast. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I did a fake intro before this. <laughs> threw to, me off my game. To see if Nick was going to do anything stupid, and uh, he didn't. You threw me off my game. And then I threw him off his game. I got to go. <laughs> we got to redo this whole thing so I can scream swear words into the mic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we got to sync our shit. <laughs> How have you been? So this is like the longest period we have not spent... In this room together yeah, in a week. It has. In the last week. I have spent the last week in Iceland, and I just got off the plane fucking 30 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. And I am so Good. goddamn jet-lagged. How's your stomach feel? I My stomach is fine. Me, my uh, brain me is not sure what, what country I'm in. We sleep the same way on airplanes. So we end up, at the end of the flight, having a lot of gas in yeah, our bellies. Yeah, like just doubled over the, the in-flight tray table yeah and after the your burrito yeah it's not that that's bothering me it's the fact i have not seen the sunset in a week oh okay um that has been fucking with me real hard but i've been self-medicating with copious amounts of brenovin Mm. uh, which has helped me sleep as it should i'm just afraid the accumulative hangover is going to kill me um, speaking of hangovers, we're on Soviet Afghan War Part Five, bringing it home. Yeah, um, we're on the home stretch. Yeah, yeah, we are. It is true. Um, so we're on Part Five of what is going to be at least a seven-part series. Uh, so go back and listen to Part One, or live dangerously. Start Part Five and not understand any of what I am talking about. That's fine too. It is a free country. Unless you lived in Afghanistan in 1985. Yeah. Or in Afghanistan right now. Um, sorry about that. Um, so when, we, le- when you, we left you last time, it was with the story of Operation Cyclone and its aftermath. So you have already kind of heard us talk about uh, how by late 1985, the Soviets wanted to get the fuck out of Afghanistan. As I would, yes. Yeah, as we still do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's becoming clearer and clearer... Uh, by the day that the Afghan government, still being led by Babrak Karmal, was an absolute failure, and the Afghan military was not going to stand on its own. Uh, there would be no greater proof of how bad things were getting than the psychological breakdown of Karmal himself, who it turned out had lost his motherfucking mind. Just out of nowhere? It was definitely gradual. Like it, He didn't seem like someone who could withstand the pressures of... Uh, of leading Afghanistan. I mean, maybe even in a normal period of Afghan Afghan history, but like definitely not during like what is it become a proxy civil war. Yeah. 
uh, and he has just been flying off the handles. Um, now, remember, Carmel had come to power because of the murder of his predecessor. So he feared assassination on every corner, and rightfully yeah, so. I would too. <laughs> I mean, he's working for the I'd people who against, killed his old buddy. Yeah, I'd eat dinner against the wall. Yeah. Uh, when he went out in public, he became such a neurotic mess that in order for him to function in any capacity, he had to be higher yes. drunk. Yes. He smoked <laughs> a ton awesome. of opium and weed and drank a fuckload of vodka. Uh, eventually, his bodyguards, who were all KGB agents, just put him under effective house arrest as the Soviet leadership feared Oof. that whenever he left, he would do something stupid while out in town crazy drunk and high and set their mission back even further. Karmal was also very afraid of being poisoned, not just through his food, but just like poison in general, like getting some splashed on you. Or I don't mean mm. also kind of rightfully so. Again, the Soviets have a very, very uh, yeah, illustrious record of poisoning people. Record. Yeah, God. Uh, I will not put on my clothes today. Yeah. Uh, They're poisoned. So you say that, but he got he he fixed his fear of poisoning by almost never wearing the same uh, yes. kind of, the same pair of uh, like pants and shirt <sighs> twice. Also, he had a rotating team of janitors working around the clock. As it should be. Through his palace, scrubbing every inch at all times to make sure it's spotless. This included the grass and the trees. Clean freak. He had someone scrubbing trees and grass. That's awesome. Yes. I mean, imagine like, honey, I got a brand new job. Really? What is it? <laughs> I'm going to buff the grass at the presidential palace. <laughs> Fuck. Okay. Why do they have grass? Grass is so shit. I hate grass. Sorry. I mean, imagine being the guy that has a, a well-kept lawn in Kabul. Mm. <laughs> that was probably him. Maybe he got hired for a reason. Uh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, so while the KGB was pretty certain Carmel's communications with the Soviet leadership back in Moscow were secure, somehow the CIA got wind of the fact that the Afghan president was little more than alcoholic palace hermit and began to spread this information around. <laughs> the Soviets tried to head this off by force. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, that's all international relations. This is a whole bunch of mean girls. <laughs> yeah, just except people get poisoned in nukes. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, the Soviets tried to head all this off by uh, forcing Carmel to go out and actually meet people for the first time in his whole presidency. Now, remember, he kind of came in under a windfall, um, and he didn't really go out much because also he wasn't really leading the country. Yeah. I mean, the Soviets were, in effect. Afghanistan at this point really only Is he existed. just a face? Yeah, that's exactly what he was. I mean, I mean, remember when he took over, he was in power for some time before people even knew he was in power. Uh so uh, pretty much as soon as Carmel left palace grounds to do meet and greets in village, he was met with a rash of assassination attempts. Oh, fuck. Uh, this included someone trying to kill him with a homemade hand grenade and a cook attempting to poison his food with cyanide that he had smuggled into the presidential palace by concealing it in his asshole. Yes. <laughs> yes. You got a keister. Keister. Got to use that prison pocket. Now, as you can imagine, this only accelerated the Soviets' desperation to find a way out of the war. Because clearly their pet project was not working out. I would imagine so. They decided if the government can't win, neither can its army. They would just have to win the goddamn war on their own. Uh, if you ha- if you've been following us thus far, you just, you know this things uh, this meant that things just got way way worse for the Afghan people. Uh, the Soviets began to get so desperate for any battlefield victory, they began bribing regional mujahideen commanders into ceasefires. Um, now you what can they imagine bribe how- them with because they didn't have money. money. Now, here's the funny part. 
is the Russian ruble was largely useless to them um, because they were buying most of their weapons in Pakistan from the Pakistani ISI or American proxies. Pakistani ISI didn't want rubles. They didn't want Afghani. They wanted U.S. dollars. Mm. So you had the Soviet Union using the U.S. dollar to bribe U.S.-backed militias to stop fighting them so they could go across the border and buy more guns from the United States. Here's money to kill us. There's This is all like, if you've ever watched Always Sunny in Philadelphia and you have Charlie Kelly with the, the, the string oh, matrix such a good show. on the wall, that yeah. is this situation. But it's all just dumb. God, I love that show. Um, and it's actually something the Soviets would continue to do on a rotating basis throughout the war. Hey, whatever makes you feel better. It's like if they were getting fucked up real bad in one region, like, oh, just throw money at that asshole until he leaves us alone. And it worked, kind yeah, of. I mean, I mean, the Mujahideen weren't stupid. They knew that like this game wasn't going to last forever. And people were already thinking of the end game. Like, who's going to be in charge of this? Like, someone's going to have to govern this mess. So if you give me, you know, $200,000 or however much it was, and I get to take a knee and sit out for the next couple months of fighting, that means I get to build up my strength, not take any casualties, while the, all these other fuck faces keep fighting the Soviets and the, and the government. So I come out on top. Yeah. Both richer and I'm rested. Mm, power move. The Soviets knew this too, but they just didn't have a better option. They said, fuck it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't give a shit. Now, with the introduction of the Stinger onto the battlefield, the Soviets began to operate at a much higher altitude. Uh, now, since it's, since it's much harder to hit targets from higher up, they started carpet bombing people. Mm. Uh, much like American tactics during Operation Rolling Thunder during Vietnam or the strategic bombing of World War II, they were just targeting vast swaths of area. Not a good thing. Bombs, however, were not the only thing the Soviets were dropping on the Afghan people and countryside. They also dropped millions upon millions of landmines from canisters uh, that like, so they had tons of landmines loaded into canisters, kind of like a cluster bomb. Yeah. And then they drop it and then just hundreds of landmines would come out per bomb. It's fucking nuts. Uh, And these would spread out across the countryside as an area denial weapon. Now, kind of like the strategic Hamlet program that the U.S. would use in Vietnam, or did use in Vietnam at this point, um, they wanted to funnel people into population centers because that was where the Soviets were in control. They did this by just saying, everybody in the countryside is free game. So they're going to sow landmines into your fields. They're going to landmine your villages. They're going to landmine your roads, everything. And I have walked through several of these landmines, and they're still everywhere. I think... Um, every year, like somewhere north of 500 to 1,000 Afghans are still wounded by uh, Soviet landmines. It's That's fucking insane. atrocious. God. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons why uh, the U.S. and Russia and you know, then the Soviet Union were not signatories to a weapons control uh, agreement on landmines because people are like, well, fuck, you know, we want, you know, we're understanding that people are still going to go to war, but we, we need to make sure that we only harm Soldiers, not civilians, and uh, you know, landmines will just harm anybody. Yeah, but we're still all about that. So, whoopsie daisy. Yeah. Uh, so they drop landmines so indiscriminately. They would later drop soldiers off in those same minefields they created because they didn't even bother to track them. Smart. Yeah. Uh, like to this day, the 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 most accurate understanding of where Soviet landmines are are from the locals, uh, and they do this through painted red rocks so they'll paint okay. one side white and one side red and they'll point the red 
towards the area where they know landmines are, which generally means they have like a family member to go lose a leg out in that field. Nobody has any like detailed, accurate, overarching maps of Afghanistan or where these minefields are because the Soviets just didn't give a fuck to to track them. Right. Um, Fuck. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this, this goes back to their, their tactic of they couldn't control the rural areas, and they certainly could not. They would simply kill everybody in them or make them totally unusable and unlivable. Many of these landmines were standard fare, but one model in particular ended up being much more nefarious. The PFM Model 1, or the Anti-Infantry High Explosive Mine, which was dropped in the hundreds of thousands, ended up in killing uh, and maiming mostly children. Why was that? Because it looked like a butterfly and would detonate as what? soon as somebody touched it with as little as 11 pounds of force. It was even brightly colored. A butterfly? Yeah. So if you look at it fast enough, it does kind of look like a toy. Maybe like a butterfly. It has wings on both sides, and they're kind of arched upwards. And it's about the size of the palm of your hand. I've found several of these. Uh, mm. And also, like I said, it only is triggered by 11 pounds of force. That's what not else? a lot. Would be hitting with 11. If I step on something, I weigh 230 pounds. I mean, I'm causing quite a bit of force. Now, a vehicle runs over something, it's hundreds and hundreds and thousands of pounds of force. A child picks up something, it's about 11 pounds. Um, now, there's something of an urban legend that this mine uh, that the Soviets deployed was somehow specifically designed to target children. I am not saying that. There's no proof of this. We try on this show right. to not veer off into wild accusatory statements. Most of the time. I cannot say that the Soviets specifically designated a child landmine. Who said that? It's pretty widely understood uh, that it was used to target civilians, mostly children and women, um, because fighters would not be dumb enough to fuck with this, generally speaking. Like, that looks like a mine, because they're dealing with landmines all the time. Yeah, It was... An area denial weapon, if I'm going to use a military term, it was a weapon of terror, if I'm going to use a logical term, like most landmines are. Yeah. Um, but yeah, obviously I have no proof. Nobody has any proof that the Soviets designed a child-based landmine. <laughs> um, but does again, it seem far-fetched, to be honest? No, no, it does not. Um, it would hardly be the least fucked up thing that any military has ever done, or the most fucked up thing any military has ever done. It is hard to see what other use a small, brightly colored toy-looking landmine that went off with significantly less force than right. a grown man could have in any other situation. It's, that's, that is my historical opinion. Call me stupid. I don't. I, you probably do anyway. That's fine. Uh, I welcome it. Yeah, that's fine. If somebody can prove what other tactical usage that this would have, I welcome it. I've... I've corrected myself before on bad takes I've had in the past, but I'm definitely not the only person that has this understanding. Um, that isn't to say, however, the Soviets did not specifically target Afghan children, because they did. Uh, the Soviets dropped large amount of chemical weapons on villages, more specifically into water supplies to force civilians from rural villages, their goal being, of course, to strip the Mujahideen of their support base, and that they succeeded. Millions of Afghans fled Soviet atrocities into refugee camps inside Pakistan. Uh, so many, uh, actually, uh, Afghanistan's population is not large. Uh, they would lose over uh, around one half of the entire Afghan population through deaths uh, from the war, deaths through malnutrition, deaths through uh, the spread of disease from oh, the war, crazy. and displacement. 
millions died, but million, several millions more ran uh, into incredibly overcramped, uh, overcramped uh, displacement camps on the Pakistani border. From those camps, the Mujahideen would just have a never-ending supply of soldiers. Right. Yep. That's how counterinsurgency works. So once inside those camps, most military-age ma- males would end up taking up arms and marching right back over the border to fight them. This feedback loop in their own tactics uh, led to led directly to the disillusionment of the Soviet ground forces. Now, this going to sound really uh, pie in the sky and idealistic of me when I point this out, but it is noted in in many many uh, soldiers' letters and firsthand accounts that the vast majority of Soviets did believe in the mission when they were deployed to it. Why wouldn't they? They did not live in a situation where they had any other dissenting opinions. Mm. People need to remember this. They were being told by their government and by the media around them, the state-controlled media, that they were going to help Afghans. The Afghans wanted their help, and they're going to be good internationalist soldiers and serve the communist cause. It was like a, a huge slap in the face when they showed up like, holy fuck, nobody wants us here. Yeah. Um, and it, it had to have been, I mean, cause like, you know, when I deployed, even the first time I'm like, fuck the Afghans don't want me there. I knew that it was everywhere. I could pull it up on Google. I could watch the news. <laughs> I could do whatever. Yeah. You had a whole uh, cell phone. Yeah. This at the time, I mean, the Soviets didn't have any, I mean, Glasnost and Perestroika hadn't happened yet. There was no dissenting opinions whatsoever. And if they did exist, they certainly did not get put out in the press. So the soldiers had no reason to not believe their government right. until they got there and they realized, holy fuck, everybody hates me. So, I mean, Oh, and as their own tactics feed into this, like the people get rapidly disillusioned really, really fast. And this ends up being even worse off because remember, we've pointed out before, the Soviets aren't doing three month, six month, or one year yeah, tours yeah, like American soldiers did. They were doing their entire conscription yeah. period in Afghanistan for a lot of people. It wasn't everybody, but a lot of people spent their entire time in the Soviet army at war. You can see how it can be pretty disillusioning. Yeah, and it sucks. When such a large body of people become disillusioned, that makes a whole mission impossible. An already impossible mission, more impossible, if that's even possible. Where'd you spend your first contract? Afghanistan. Fuck. Yeah, and it should surprise nobody that less than 0.5 of all Soviet conscripts re-enlisted. Their retention rate wasn't so good. No, but also they didn't have to worry about it. I'd imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So, years of fighting... Uh, had taught the Mujahideen uh, new tactics. They would hit them quick, melt back into the mountains. And, you know, the, 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 what we all know now is classic guerrilla warfare. Remember, this is as new to them as it was to the U.S. in Vietnam. And much like it did to the U.S. in Vietnam, this blurred the lines of who's a fighter and who's a civilian. Right. Eventually, any attempts by Soviet soldiers to tell the difference would stop. Uh, if a Soviet convoy was ambushed near a village or what they call a kishlak, oh, fuck. Uh, the soldiers would either go over to the village and just start shooting people or level it with an airstrike. Soon they would cross the line from indiscriminate violence into cold-blooded murder. Uh, this is from the book Zinky Boys, which I have quoted multiple times. Yeah. Uh, still I, interested in getting that book. Uh, Sounds you, great. You can find it for free online through a PDF, which is- I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, according to the book, it said, quote, they killed my friend. Later when I saw a group of them laughing or smiling, I shot them. I shot up an Afghan wedding, and I got happy uh, when I saw the bride and groom dead. I'm not sorry for them. These war crimes were something that badly alienated the Soviet army 
from their Afghan counterparts. Because remember, they're working with hundreds of thousands of Afghan right. soldiers. Because uh, at first they're playing a security role. Yeah. And while hypothetically the two are supposed to be working together, what right. really happened was the Soviet commanders thought them to be terrible soldiers and would actually do what I consider kind of nuts, and that is put the Afghans behind them. Now, I worked with Afghan soldiers, I worked with Afghan police. They still have their problems. We'd put them up front because that encourages them to not run away because we would be behind them. Soviets thought of a little bit differently. And I guess rightfully so. If they were going to run away, fuck it, let them run away. We'll, we won't have to worry about them anymore. Right. Whatever. Uh, so an Afghan army district commander named Yar Muhammad remembered that the Soviets were forcing his unit to take part in reprisal attacks against a nearby village after Mujahideen uh, raids or ambushes against Soviet forces. Uh, the brutality of these attacks horrified and made many of his soldiers switch sides. Uh, he also recounts how horrible and xenophobic the Soviets were to his soldiers. Uh, the mistreatment was so common that it was just a fact of life. There are countless examples of Soviets stripping heavy weapons away from their Afghan allies because they distrusted or feared they would just give them to the Mujahideen. You can't blame them for switching sides. No, not, not at all. all. Holy no. shit. For all, yeah. the, for all the faults of the Mujahideen, and there are countless, uh, like the Soviets were not good allies. And I could say like... They're I, pieces of shit. <laughs> no, they're, they're not good. I mean, the Soviets are so racist to one another... I can't imagine how bad they were to the Afghans. And remember, like a lot of the same ethnic groups were in both armies. And like they still were racist against yeah. them. It's insane. It's like uh I would imagine this, because I see this as kind of funny. I'd imagine a Soviet going to Afghanistan, getting this nice tan, yeah. and then some other Soviets coming in going like, Look at you, brown motherfucker. He's like, <laughs> No, no, I'm tan, dude. <laughs> I'm one of you. Yeah. But still, just just cause different, and it's a lot of it's bred. It's self perpetuating, and because like in their lead up to the training, it's like part of the training is like the Afghans are useless. You have to do this, really. Yeah, and I, that was part of my training too. So like, I can see, it. yeah, All yeah. Right. And so like you, you're you don't start off like you know. I, I would I would imagine that the this the Afghans are hoping, oh fuck, a new Soviet Union's here. Um, well, we get to start off with a you know. Fresh slate, not really. No. Uh, and there, there was plenty of flaws in the Afghan army at the time, but they did get better uh, eventually, but the Soviets never trusted them at all. Now, this like fear and distrust that the Soviets had towards the Afghans, the Soviet government was doing much of that to their own soldiers, which is kind of weirdly hilarious. Um, so we talked a little bit before about Checky. Yes. Yes. Um, that the company script, they effectively were not paying their soldiers. I kind of wish I just had Checky. Just to have. I would love to get my hands on some, but like I could, I couldn't even find a picture of it anyway. Really? Yeah. Uh, I think it was like literally just scraps of paper. Um, so they did that because they didn't trust their soldiers, also because they didn't want to pay them, like because they didn't trust, like they they were just free things to be used. Um, so the soldiers ended up being penniless. Mm, yeah. Um, good thing they had checky. Yeah, that nobody would accept. Yeah. Um, now this had the side effect of now the soldiers are poor. They're going to go out and get things. Uh, where are they going to get them from? They're going to steal them. So they would steal things, uh, from the local civilians, pissing off the civilians even further. Um, now that, that, what actually got worse than that, I know it's probably, you're trying to think like, what is worse than stealing from civilians, selling military equipment to the Mujahideen. 
which they did to the the enemy. Yes, not directly. At least not oh, yet. Okay. At least not yet. We'll talk about that in a different episode. That's awesome. Hold uh, on, <laughs> wait. Yeah, it gets dumb, dumber, I should say. So they would sell uh, extra ammo, rifles, helmets, whatever, to bazaars off post. Knowing it was just going to be funneled to the Mujahideen. Yeah, they already know it. Yeah. So they might as well just be selling it directly to them. Yeah. It's They're going to much. them. Yeah. Uh, the Great Gamble points out that they used uh, they got a good this deal. extra uh, money to buy things they couldn't get at home. Yeah. Like, like Japanese made boom boxes. Adidas tracksuits. Oh, they had those. They had, they had the Moscas. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which every Mujahideen soldier knows the fatal shot on a Soviet soldier. Adidas stripes. <laughs> um, now, for an, an extra bit of hilarity, try to picture the, all these like pretty emaciated-looking, drunken Soviet soldiers, but they have a bitch and ghetto blaster yes. over their shoulder because that's why they're blasting horrible Euro horror techno. <laughs> I fucking can only imagine that underground dungeon porn music. <laughs> yeah, as they're just laying around the dust, trying not to starve to death. We're hungry and we're poor. Please send beats. <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> so it should become no surprise to anybody that uh, thousands of Soviet, uh, sorry, thousands of Afghan soldiers were deserting. First of all, I think they use that as a tool for ceasefire. I'd use beats. Everybody can enjoy a good beat. Drop beats, not bombs, y'all. Exactly. Um. So thousands of of Afghan soldiers were running away from the ranks. As soon as they could. Their beats are terrible. This oh, music fuck. sucks. <laughs> yeah. Um, this led to something of a manpower emergency within the Afghan government. To make matters worse, most countries' militaries are propped up by a large uh, core of like veterans within it. Like something that pretty much never formed in the Afghan army. Now you think about it, when you go to a new unit, how many of those people are new? Right. Not that many. Yeah. Not even twenty five percent. No. Every military is based like the backbone of every military is is people who have been there a while and know what they're doing. Yeah, you got um, the guy who knows. Yeah, they never had that. Um, this just, is uh, here Raj. Simply, yeah. He's been in for ten days. He's our veteran. Yeah, he's the fucking platoon commander. <laughs> yeah, what? <laughs> he didn't even run away from battle once. Holy look, look shit! At the, look at the parapolls <laughs> on the this guy. Is on this guy. So, and he stayed throughout the beats. Ninety percent of deserters within the Afghan army were gone within the first five months. <laughs> Holy shit. So within six months, <laughs> You're pretty much everybody in your basic training class is gone. <laughs> That's if they didn't die. Fuck, am I a general now? <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations on your two years of service. You're, the, you're now the fucking you're now the chief of chancellor. Yeah. <laughs> what? So this obviously would lead to the PDPA's conscription program going wildly out of control as members of the Afghan secret police known as the COD began literally ah, kidnapping fish. people off the street. That five-year-old, take him, go. Good for service. <laughs> that motherfucker's got a mustache. He's old enough. <laughs> oh, it's just dirty from the fields. Take him. <laughs> Speaking of the COD, now that's... that's terrible fish. I don't like Speaking COD. Speaking of COD, it is the K-H-A-D, Salmon. not the C-O-D, not the Call of Duty. It is. I was talking about the fish. Now, COD is a acronym which stands for several things in past two. I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce. Do, it. Do one. Uh, I didn't even write it down. Oh, fuck you. Uh, 
let's spare a minute to talk about these assholes. And out of a pile of assholes, a spaghetti network of assholes, if you will. Would you th- say they uh, smell like cod? No. No, these guys smell like something much, much worse. And that is uh, lots and lots of dead bodies. Um, it's a lot of cod? I'm, I'm going to say out of everybody involved, every governmental organization involved in this war, they're the only one that measures up to the KGB on level of terrible shit. Really? Yes. And, and Honestly, I mean, the KGB is kind of comically funny sometimes. They, I mean, the COD was pretty, the COD was so inept that it was funny sometimes too, like literally kidnapping anybody off the street and throwing them into an army barracks. But at the same time, they were just like horrifically evil to the point that like, that didn't, like you have to stop there. Like that didn't probably act happen this is just like a really bad biased source that's just making them seem like a whole lot more evil and then like the cod general chief of staff is like yes and then he ripped out his fingernails oh "Oh, fuck fuck." (laughs) i was thinking like they cut some kid's balloon it flew into the sky if only oh worse what do you think torture is (laughs) can be torture if you're really into that (laughs) i'll tell you anything (laughs) You, sir, don't understand how important balloons are to my family. (laughs) So, the COD was, for lack of a better term, the Afghan version of the KGB. Uh, Quite literally. Do you think they were trying to live up to that standard, or are they just trying to do their own thing? More than that, they were made to be the KGB. Oh. Because throughout the entirety of the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, they fell directly under the KGB's command. Really? But while we can say for all their flaws... Uh, and there are literally more flaws than can be counted by a human being. The KGB was an incredibly effective intelligence service. Mm. Um, we cannot say the same for the COD. The COD was headed by a guy named Muhammad Najibola, a man put in place directly by the head of the KGB, Yuri Andropov. If this guy doesn't party as hard as I think he should... I'm going to say that Najibola probably has a much longer career arc than you could imagine right now. Really? I'll just wait five minutes. Okay. Under his watch, tens of thousands of political opponents, clerics, mullahs, and Mujahideen sympathizers were kidnapped, tortured, and executed. Ten thousand? Tens of thousands. How? Nobody really knows. What? They stopped counting at around 70. People? 70,000. Oh, I thought he was like, uh, 70, 70. Yeah, keep going. So kind of like the purges uh, that happened a couple episodes ago, they kept pretty detailed notes yeah. until things just spiraled so vastly out of control they didn't bother anymore. Which just, to me, proves laziness. Uh, because, like, fucking... the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia kept account of, like, millions of people which they is beat insane. to death with sticks. Which is fucking insane. No, it is. And we'll cover that eventually. But I'm just yes. saying, like, the COD is just is fucking JV bullshit when it comes to the record keeping. Yeah, they just got, the dude got lazy. He said, eh, fuck it. It's a lot of writing. I have carpal tunnel going on right now. And I think a lot of it is when you have these strongman organizations led by men who are legitimately terrifying, and Najibullah was legitimately terrifying, people just, like, stop being good at their jobs. Like, because, I mean, for all, like, the the, the KGB pipe hitters or whatever you want to call them, there was 10 dudes doing paperwork. You know, there's 10 dudes doing paperwork, probably. A lot of paperwork goes into these into into intelligence services, but that requires a fully functioning state apparatus, which Afghanistan never really had. So I don't picture the COD as being this bureaucratic mess that I see the KGB being. I see it being just like a gang of fucking. It sounds like a bunch of thugs. It's, it's pretty much what it was. Yeah, yeah. 
just under the KGB. Yeah, exactly. But not the KGB. The KGB used the COD for things that even they thought were gross. Really? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, and the KGB murdered children sometimes. Yeah, they did. So, like, that's saying some shit. They had some funny assassinations, too. Uh, They murdered a guy with an umbrella. There's, I love. I think we should just do an episode on assassinations. The KGB did. They're all really bad, but they're yeah. all fucking terrible. <laughs> like airstrike. Oh, suicide. That was suicide. There was one in Britain not that long ago. Now this is the FSB, the um, the modern day KGB, where a guy got murdered, stuffed in a in a gym bag, oh, yeah. with a padlock, then thrown into a bathtub, and the the London uh, Metropolitan Police were just like. It was a suicide. <laughs> like, Jesus fucking Christ. Do you even not want to do your jobs? It's a whole bunch of fucking oh, I want to go out. smooth-brained ass bobbies like, oh shit. He killed himself. Yeah. <laughs> hey, can you believe this guy just came up off the street, shot this other guy in the head because the other guy wanted to commit suicide. Just paid it, the guy to commit a suicide. It reminds me 100% of that Dave Chappelle joke where he's like, what happened? I don't know. He got shot and he sprinkled crack all over himself. <laughs> yeah. That's like a... I can imagine the Bobby there just, oh, open, shut, closed case, suicide. Yeah. One of, uh, one of the old regular Russian suicides <laughs> I see. Yeah. Well, I'll be at the pub. Yeah. Um, nice. So now you're probably wondering how the fuck did tens of thousands of people fall into being suspicious uh, by or considered suspicious by the cod. Um, how long were they operating? The cod the whole time. Um, throughout the entire existence of this version of Afghanistan. Mm. Okay. Um, now, people would fall into their sights if they did something as little as not join the Communist Party, not graduate from school, or say literally have a, anything against the government. Their lawn is bad. They yeah. don't put the trash cans in the right spot. The cot is what happens That's if you gave HOA. your local HOA the power to kill people. Fuck. So, like, I know so I've, I have I've, to fight my HOA. Uh, I mean, if my HOA is the COD, I'm going to have the best fucking lawn in the block, dude. Now, which isn't true. I'm not going to. You won't. No. (laughs) I'll I'll just die. Uh, (laughs) I'll fight that old bitch that comes around the block. Like my chances. Yeah, I'll fight her. Um, Now, uh, I've talked before about like denunciations and how people end up getting caught up in that. And that's kind of how the COD worked. Like if I didn't like you, say you owed me money and I knew you're never going to pay me back. I go to my friendly neighborhood COD office, like Nick is saying some shit about like communism being stupid, and you would just disappear one night. They just go off hearsay. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. One hundred percent. They took everybody one hundred percent at face value. Like, why would he lie? Sounds perfectly reasonable to me. Now <laughs> let's follow that trail of thought to the worst possible outcome. Did somebody like fucking say, "Hey, you said some shit," and they're like. Oh fuck! And they started just hitting themselves, or something. <laughs> like the scene from Fight Club. Yeah. <laughs> oh god, that'd be great. Uh, <laughs> so, awesome. a- as you can imagine, the Soviets fell in love with the COD due to their efficiency in doing horrible violence to others, uh, but they fell more in love with Najibullah himself. This is despite oh, yes. the fact that under Najibullah, great-looking man, definitely not any of those Ugh. things. Now, this is despite the fact under Najibullah's leadership, the COD had become a hotbed of graft, theft, and corruption, but. They fell in love with the insane torture houses that the COD ran. Inside of a series of prisons dotted around Kabul, they, <laughs> they put the screws towards anybody who might kind of look Mujahideen-y. Who looks? There's a look? 
He's got a beard. <laughs> Rip on his fingernails. Oh, man. He said they, he read the Quran once. Break his fingers. They like how they run the torture houses. It sounds like a Yelp review. Oh, dude, the 10 out of 10 would visit again. Yeah. Yep. So the COD became so trusted that it was the main intelligence body used by the Soviets. Now, I don't mean the main Afghan intelligence body. I mean the main one. They soon superseded the KGB, not because they trusted them more than the KGB, considered of kind of outsourcing. They didn't have to put Russians or Soviet civilians into any dangerous situations anymore. Uh, well, we got the COD, send them in. And they wouldn't second guess any of anything they told them. They said, fuck it, let's go. So the intelligence that the COD gathered in the torture prisons was then filtered down to the Soviet paratrooper and Spetsnaz units to act on. Little to no oversight was given to what kind of intelligence the COD was actually gathering. Fuck, I think getting so the what, COD to do anything was pretty easy. No. I bet you can't do that. No, there is. it was literally yes, a group of uniformed psychopaths. Yeah, I bet all they did was just, the KGB, bet you can't do any of this shit. Yes, we can. Uh, watch us. And then do some it's, dumb it's shit. It's like all that time, uh, like, I do if you've ever been out drinking with me. You won't fucking do it. I know you're going to do it. Yes. I know you're going to do it. Say it anyway. It's exactly what the KGB is doing. I have a roommate that's the exact same way where I got him to probably try to sell some yearbooks at a bar. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for your service. Uh, Now, you're probably asking, what was some of this really bad intelligence that the COD was getting and then Soviets were actually acting on? Well, that if anybody owned a horse, especially a white horse, he was definitely a leader of the Mujahideen. This, of course, led to Soviet helicopters seeing horses tied up outside of houses and then just blowing up the houses. What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) The horse runs off. The horse is like, I was just eating fucking hay here, man. (laughs) He just runs off. They also took everybody's word at face value, regardless of what they say. Say somebody was being brutalized when those prisons... And the promise of whatever horrifying thing was being done to them would stop if they just named somebody who supported the Mujahideen. Anybody would give up a name to make this awful, horrible pain. I, I mean, that's too. why torture doesn't work. Yeah. Um, the COD agents would quickly go out and find the person their victim named, drag them back to the prison, and repeat the exact process all over again in a never-ending loop yeah. of torture, murder, and brutality. We're really doing good on our quotas. Got 10 through this week. Yeah. I mean, and again, I don't mean to continually bring up the Khmer Rouge, but this is exactly what they did in S21. They're like, we need 10 names. Give us 10 names. I don't know 10 people who don't like you. Well, give us a couple of days. I bet you do. And then those 10 people will be brought in. Oh, yeah. And those 10 people give out 10 names apiece. And then, you know, that's how a million people get murdered. But if you just pinch my triceps, I'll give you 20 names. I'll give you a good amount. I will cave to people playing Old Town Road. Like, if you play mm. Old Tad Run, like, you know what? Fuck it. My mom's an ISIS. Just make it stop. Solid. Yeah. Uh, another one of COD's tactics, whose agents would tag along with Soviet forces during counterintelligence mission, was to summarily execute men they found who had smooth, clean hands. Of course, <laughs> operating under the assumption that anybody without calloused, gross farmer's hands must be Mujahideen. First off, you need calluses. Now. Great for lifting. There's a problem with this. Because clearly finding a resistance war and hiking through the mountains leads to soft men. There's one, so there's an important fact that all these COD people forgot, which is unsurprising because they all came from cities. Clerics Uh, and mullahs were normally exempt from manual labor in villages. So again, just 
amounted to a pogrom against wow. religious leaders in the villages, which just keeps happening. They don't seem like the smartest type. No, they're fucking idiots. Yeah. Because you know what? Yeah, no, I can't think of anything. No, that's terrible. The Cod had another favorite tactic, which may have been the worst of all of them. Afghan village life revolved heavily around families. Um, Entire generations would live in one compound, um, and that happens pretty much to this day. Um, If you go into a house, there's a good point you're going to meet three generations of the same family. And that was how life was ran back then, too. Knowing that, the Cod knew that most people in rural areas had at least one family member actively helping the Mujahideen. Uh, they weren't entirely Is wrong. That a solid number? What? One family member in that house? It's it's not. It, like, it, it would be shocking. Because Cod? Nah. Not so, trustworthy. It would be surprising if the entire extended whatever family didn't have at least one Mujahideen sympathizer. That makes sense. Especially in the rural countryside. There's a good chance that everybody in that family was actually a sympathizer. Yeah. I mean, in the rural areas... Very rarely did that feeling tilt towards pro-government. It tilted towards, I don't care, just leave me alone. Yeah. And also then pro-Mujahideen. There was no pro-government. Um, those people were all largely in the cities and probably already in the army because they were drafted. It just seems like a safe number to say, like, at least one member. Yeah. Sounds really safe. Uh, they, and they probably were not wrong. But how they went about it was insane. First, Kata agents and Soviet soldiers would land in a village. And the cod would kidnap somebody, anybody, a random person that they saw. First one, you're coming in the helicopter. You smell like Mujahideen. Hey, you with the face. Uh, so once aboard the helicopter, the agents won the demand. The terrified Afghans felt like guide the helicopter towards a place his family, who are definitely Mujahideen, were living. Now, the civilian has been around the block a couple times. He's dealt with Soviet soldiers before, and he's probably dealt with the cod before. He knew what was going to happen to their family if he opened his fucking mouth. He would just point out random houses or houses owned by people whose family didn't like or owed money to. <laughs> Whoever. <laughs> Anybody that was in his family. Yeah. They, they effectively made random Afghan villagers accomplices oh, in mass murder. My neighbor would be fucked if we went down that road. The Soviets would then blow up the house and then throw the, civil- throw the civilian out of the helicopter to his death. Wow. Uh, because this wasn't quite evil enough, the soldiers would then kidnap women, fly away with them while raping them in the back of the helicopter. When they were done, they'd kick them out to their death. This brand of helicopter death was not unique to the Cod, however. Throwing prisoners out of helicopters became so common that there are multiple first-hand accounts of it. Uh, from Zinky Boys, quote, We captured a bunch of terrorists and interrogated them. Where are your arms dumps, we asked them. We took a couple of them up into the helicopter with us and asked them again. They refused to answer, so we threw them out into the rocks. This is like one of ten times it's brought up in the book. Wow. So this isn't like one of those like... So it's popular. It happened all over the country. There's a good chance if a paratrooper unit existed, they did it. Yeah, that makes sense. It's, I know it's a, that is a... General statement, huge generalization of tens of thousands of Soviet soldiers. But if you were a paratrooper working in close contact with uh, helicopter lift activity, like air assault, unit, yeah. you did it. Almost Makes without sense. question. If one book brings it up 10 times, you got some, some numbers against you. And I think that book only interviews about 70 people. Really? So, yeah. Yeah, you got numbers against you. Yeah. Which brings us back to the Soviet Union looking for a way out of the war. Mikhail Gorbachev 
Kaldor a bleeding wound, and it was he was rapidly trying to find a way out. Now, he wanted to build the Afghan army to uh, begin to take over the majority of combat operations. First, they'd slapped together a former... Uh, uh, so before they, they, they came up, or they could come up with this functioning army, they had to come up with a semi-functioning government to run that army, right? Uh, their first step to do that was to, you guessed it, get rid of Bob Rock Carmel. Oh, fuck yeah, dude. Hold on. He's still partying. I know he is. Oh, he is... At this point, paranoid Car- party. At this point, Carmel is full on Howard Hughes and up in the presidential compound, drinking his own piss and telling people to get into one airplanes and shit. There's no way that guy is operating well. That's awesome. Soviets did that in a way that thus far they seemed unable to even attempt. Political intrigue, not outright murder. Really? They didn't kill Bob Rock Carmel. That's really surprising. Yeah, I thought they were going to kill him. So. They did, however, show incompetence in doing this. Carmel was brought to the Soviet Union for a health checkup with the sole express purpose of a doctor uh, to tell him that he was too frail and sick to continue to rule Afghanistan. The Soviets had a reason to believe that this would be the outcome. Carmel's health had been going to shit. He wasn't sleeping and he was drunk most of the time and he's addicted to opium. I would too if I looked over my shoulder every waking second of my life. Uh, Instead, however, the doctor gave him a clean bill of health. He wasn't on the fucking page? No, on the same page as everybody? I think they were just banking on the fact his health had to have been going to shit and didn't even bother to tell the doctor. You're as healthy as a white horse. Yeah. Don't look up at the sky. (laughs) Uh, Now, this is really stupid because this is the KGB playing the downfall. Just tell the doctor to fucking lie, but they didn't. So, instead, the KGB bribed the Afghan minister of defense to confront Karmal when he returned to tell him that he needed to resign from his permission, which he did. That's it. It was that easy. I mean, now when you get the minister of defense, especially in like Afghanistan to do this, like it's a, it's, it's the implication. If you don't resign, I will resign you. Like I have the army. Yeah. It's that easy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a lot of this had to do with the fact that like he knew the minister of defense wouldn't have been doing this if he didn't have the Soviets like thumbs up. So like, he's like, fuck the Soviets don't like me anymore. I need to get the fuck out of here before they kill me. <laughs> The shit that I've been fearing my whole time in here. Yeah. After which, he was sent into exile in Moscow. Now, uh, Carmel tried to do some like in-house political infighting bullshit in Afghanistan. It's really unimportant. He just went to exile. Did he uh, do anything cool afterwards? No, he no? just died of like cancer or something a couple oh, years okay. later. Yeah. Cool. Now, who do you think the Soviets tapped to replace him? Tell me. Najibola! Yes. Now, once Najibola was comfortably installed in power, they began to restructure the Afghan army to match the Soviet one. That included conscripting anybody left who had not been conscripted by force yet, ramping up the army's number to about 300,000. They also centered the army's power on the cot itself, an attempt to break up any major body of power that was not centered directly on Mahabha Najibola. This is, of course, to stop any kind of coup from taking place. Here, you could also pay your men in these scraps of paper that we saved for you. Have you thought about not paying any of them? (laughs) Yes. We found it very successful. As you can see, we have one man with a boombox. Yeah. He might not have food, but check out them sick beats. Yeah. He's just laying down listening to beats. (sighs) Is that one dead? No, he's sleeping. Uh, So, Najibola began uh, a system of government militias. Now, 
This is all pretty much based on bribery, too. Uh, most of these militias had at one point been involved in the Mujahideen or gangs, some kind of weird mountain mafia deal. <laughs> they weren't loyal government people. That's fucking awesome. Um, is that a show on, like, like how they had the Amish mafia? Oh, that was so fake, though. That'd be great, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd write that screenplay. Hit me up, Netflix. Give everybody else a show. Yeah. Because um, the Amish mafia was fucking terrible. It wasn't real. Whoever believed that shit. Somebody out there did. No, Some, a shit ton of people Somebody did. listening to the show was like, that was fake. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so... As you can imagine, all this swirling mess of militias that were now on the government payroll did not make things any like better for the Afghan government. Does it get worse? Uh, it always gets worse. It gets worse until everybody's dead, uh, oh, yeah. okay. which hasn't quite happened yet. Uh, when, what Najibullah did instead was plant the seeds of his own death. Uh, so he promoted a man named Abdul Rashid Dostum, uh, who led an entire division of these militia fighters. Now, full disclosure, hmm. I wrote a full, very negative article on Abdul Rashid Dostum uh, for Charlie Lima News. Uh, sorry, Lima Charlie News. It was, it was two years ago, I think. So, that was incredibly biased. This is not because that was, that was based on current events. On um, uh, he, le- he tends to use rape as a weapon against his political opponents. Mm, okay. He did back then as well, but not as, as much proof is documented about it. For instance, at one point he was the Minister of Defense and the vice president of Afghanistan, he was not allowed in the country. What? Yeah. So he did that at the same time, but not being in the country? Yes. This makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but that being said, uh, Dostum commanded a huge number of fighters. Uh, he'd become, uh, Najibullah would come so uh, accustomed to relying on Dostum rather than his actual own army um, that he was given the Hero of the Republic of Afghanistan award, as well as reporting to Najibullah directly, skipping over any military chain of command, um, which Najibullah was not a military person. Yeah, what's the criteria for that award? So it's the, it's, it's their Medal of Honor. Yeah. Um, but also, if you... Now, here's the difference between Hero of the Soviet Union, Hero of the Afghan Republic, and the Medal of Honor. You can get the hero of those awards, and I guess the hero of the Russian Federation now exists because the Soviet Union does not, for not all, always military stuff. Like you can get like, I think I already said uh, Leonid Brezhnev gave one to himself. Yeah. Um. So the the criteria bends and flexes heavily depending on how powerful. Ah uh, yes. Yeah. Dostum and the militias he commanded turned into little more than state-sanctioned death squads, and it could be argued that's kind of Dostum's job to this day. Um. By 1987, the Soviet Union had one foot out the door. They had finally accepted that not only were they not winning the war, they simply lacked an army that had the ability to win. No matter how hard they tried, the Soviet army seemed in a constant state of collapsing inward onto itself. One thing they tried to do was to extend the length of deployments. From a few months... Great idea. Now, in the very beginning, when they had what was called a limited contingent of Soviet armed forces in Afghanistan... It was a couple months because they didn't think it was going to last that long. Uh, by this point, like I've said before, it was a full two years. Uh, Soviet conscripts would only get about a week or two of training before being sent into the country. The Soviets believed that learning in the country is better than training. It was faster and much cheaper. It's probably the real reason. Yeah. You didn't have to spend a whole lot of money I on see them. that. I mean, you don't waste any money on a conscript if they die in their first patrol. That's true. 
And if you just give them paper as money. Yeah. I think the loss of money I'm thinking of is a loss of equipment. Yeah. That's not, not the loss of a paycheck. But no matter how hard they tried, they were fighting an uphill battle. Early in the war, this is easily covered up through superior weapons and firepower. Also, a shitty conscript still had more training than a farmhand with a bolt-action rifle. But nearly a decade rifle... Sorry, fuck, let me try that again. But nearly a decade later, this is not the case anymore. As soon uh, as the two-year-long deployment ended, those conscripts would go home. Right? That's how that system works. Soviet enlistment was virtually non-existent. Fuck, two years is so long. Yeah. Now... The chance that a soldier would return to fight again was incredibly low, but it did happen uh, when the soldiers we we uh, we use as a source at length, Valerie Vestroyten, would return to Afghanistan for like five tours, and he said that he quite enjoyed the war. What? Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about him later. He enjoys it. So here's the thing: not to continually bring the current Afghan war into this, but. Vestroyten and most people in his military class made their whole careers on this war. He started okay. as a lieutenant. He ended as a fucking colonel. And they saw the war as a means of advancement. Even long after the point of, like, we're going to fight to defend Afghanistan, it was career advancement. Right. Now, if that doesn't sound familiar, hmm. Mm, yeah, I can see what you I won't saying. go much further past that, but... Sounds very familiar. Uh, yeah, I could see that. Um, now, like I was saying, the vast majority of those uh, Soviets did not come back. However, Mujahideen did not have this problem. In fact, they only turned into a more effective fighting force as the conflict grew older. Yeah, they lived there. Pair that with the Mujahideen's massive growing pipeline of foreign weapons and advisors along with the waves of Soviet-trained Afghan army conscripts joining them instead of fighting for the government... Soviets simply saw there was no way they were ever going to win. By 1987, the Mujahideen were a significantly more, fighting, uh, more successful fighting force than the Afghan army, and it could certainly be argued that they were, they were better than the Soviets as well. Mm. A small side note here about the Afghan conscripts who found their way into the Mujahideen. In the documentary Jihad, uh, during which a journalist follows a unit of Mujahideen fighters. So, s- side note to the side note, same uh, journalist uh, would follow the Soviets after this. Really? Yeah, and the Soviets knew about wow. him following the Mujahideen. Ooh. Uh, and he was there. He's like, "Yeah, if we if you if we would have caught you at the Mujahideen, we would have killed you too." And he's like, "Okay." Uh, <laughs> so during his his time with the Mujahideen, it shows the Afghan army units like the Mujahideen lay an ambush and engage the Afghan army units, and they just break it for the first sign of contact. Um, just throwing their weapons down, running off, and surrendering as soon as they could. Um, and afterward, the Mujahideen separates them into two groups. One group was the young conscripts who still had their heads freshly shaven, and the other was the ones with the hairs grown out. The bald conscripts would be allowed to join the Mujahideen or simply return home. People with beards, long hair, executed on the spot. Ooh. The idea being that the heavily politically indoctrinated uh, Afghan conscripts were bought in. Like they had been in long enough where if they were going to desert, they would have done it by now. Yeah. They just kind of there now. Yeah. They either 
I mean, for me, maybe like, I, I could never see myself deserting, like even if that was available to me, mostly because like I'd just be too afraid to. I feel like that's probably a decent number of these guys, but it didn't really matter. You didn't run, you were going to die. Um, yeah, but the idea being, of course, that these fresh conscripts could be flipped. Yeah. Or they would just go home and they probably would not want to fight again. Oh, yeah. That did not stop several Soviet-educated officers who had trained in the best Moscow academies from joining the Mujahideen, however. Really? Yeah. What? I mean, it wasn't a ton of them, but it happened. Yeah, that's still insane. That the, uh, the fact that they are allowed to join, was there an incentive that the Mujahideen saw that like, this was an advantage for them? Intelligence. Yeah. I mean, if I'm going to... So if I'm starting a popular resistance movement, out of myself and the local suburbanite community. And I have some dude who went to West Point or OCS or whatever, and he's a captain. Um, hey, I want to join. I'm probably not going to turn him down. I mean, even if he doesn't know anything like about battle tactics, like the sheer wealth of intelligence that he has on the everyday functionings of the army would be pretty advantageous. Um, I mean, he'd be a wealth of knowledge. Now, would I kill him as soon as he's done being useful? Yeah, probably. <laughs> so Soviet officers were actually useful? They knew a lot. Okay. Um, now, just because their rank structure didn't seem like they knew shit. You know, I think the main, so the main problem with, I think, the Soviet military, and most militaries structured like it. Um, I know the Chinese military was structured a lot like it until very recently. It's incredibly top-heavy. Um, and decision-making processes flow downward. That's how the Japanese military is. Yeah. Um, NCOs have very little um, sway. I think they're called Paparov chicks or something like that. Um, they weren't squad leaders. Like they, they, they were fire team leaders, but they did not conduct things on their own. They followed the commands of their platoon commander, who followed the commands of their company commander, who followed the commands of their... Like, right. Nobody was making independent decisions. Like, there's a very good, especially this far advanced in the war, there's a really good chance that most of these guys who had survived this long knew what the fuck they were doing. But if they didn't do what whatever idiot lieutenant, captain, major, whoever over them told them to do, they were fucked. Like, and, and we have talked about before, and we'll talk about a little bit more later on, how much just any officer not liking you could be a death sentence. Um like they controlled their very lives. Like your leave when like you know, I know so when when Americans are deployed, if you're deployed for a year, you get two weeks of leave. Technically, so did the Soviets. But you're willing if you were to guess randomly which one of those soldiers got their leave approved, who do you think it'd be? Oh fuck. If you're the one if you're the person questioning their lieutenant or their captain, whoever, it ain't gonna be fucking you. Yeah. So some people rolled the dice and decided their life would be a lot easier if they just didn't open their fucking mouth. And remember, this is in a society of people who decided it's in their favor if they don't open their fucking mouth. So dissent didn't really exist. Um, but remember, the Soviets had to kind of like set up their Afghan allies here so the, the whole house of cards didn't come crashing down as soon as they exited. Um, they decided that they would do the same thing to the Afghans that do their own soldiers, just throw them into combat. Um, that hilariously enough, they called this process 
Afghanization or leading with an Afghan face. Oh. You'll never guess what term we use do the exact same thing. Really? Yes. Holy shit. <laughs> it's almost like history we repeats learn. itself if people oh. are stupid. Yeah. Um, so, until now, the Soviets had been the main fighting force in the war. Like the flip of a switch, they would change that. The Afghans would be the main fighting force on the ground, while the Soviets would support them with heavy weapons like artillery, bombers, helicopters, advisors, uh, you know, professional positions that the Afghans didn't quite have yet, like Spetsnaz. Sounds familiar. But the giant regimental offensive operations were to be at an end, at least for now. Yeah, it was going to be on the Afghans. Oh. Nobody was a smaller fan of this. Nobody hated this plan more than the Afghan government itself. Oh, fuck, we got to do something. (laughs) Nobody in the Afghan government trusted their army. Like, because remember, Najibola, I wouldn't like either. all the other presidents before him, had Soviet bodyguards, doctors, and everything else. He didn't have Afghan shit. Fuck, everything's red. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Najibola considered it a betrayal, uh, but the Soviets didn't really give a fuck what he said. Um, they decided to prove him. So, like, the, the Soviets could tell him all day long. That like, dude, we built you this army. It will work. But the Soviets are like, you know what, motherfucker? Let's prove it to you. Let's show you that this army works. Did they? About that. Oh, okay. Um, That was when the Soviets ordered an entire Afghan army unit to attack a well-known and well-mapped out Mujahideen stronghold in the Argadab Valley in Kandahar. Now, they picked a battle that was the most favorable battle that the, that, the, that the Afghan army could have. That is, it was a conventional battle. I mean, they were trained in Soviet conventional warfare, in like large-scale battles. They weren't given any specialized counterinsurgency training. Right. They were attacking a literal trench line and a building complex. They would even have full Soviet aircraft and artillery support. So you're saying they should have this in the bag? Yeah, there's no way the Mujahideen should win. And so, of course, the Mujahideen won. They mm. didn't not only held their ground, they counterattacked and routed really? an entire Afghan army regiment. Wow. Soon, it became clear to the Soviets that their best hope of leaving Afghanistan was launching one last huge operation to smash the Mujahideen while forcing the Afghan government to reform into something that might be able to function without them. That is where we'll pick up next week. Fucking cliffhanger. Sylvester Stallone. So. I want to see that movie again. I will say next week is the final episode of the main story of the <laughs> series. We will have a spinoff. Yeah. Uh, but it'll be a little bit more fun, I guess. I don't know. But. Thank you, everybody, for tuning this in. This wasn't fun? Uh, I had a blast. Yeah, I had a great um, time. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if that was a landmine joke or what. But um, <laughs> yeah. But thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Right, review us on iTunes. Yes. It all I, helps. If you The think, sweaty shirt idea got turned down for some fucking reason. If you think what we do is worth a buck. Sweaty underwear is next. You can throw us a dollar on Patreon. 
greatly appreciated. It goes towards running the show. You get access to our bonus content. If you donate $5 or more, you get access to even more bonus content and get some free stuff on the side. Um, you have to wear a shirt out in public or into buildings or you'll get arrested or get a ticket or something. Why not make it be one of our shirts? Yeah. And you can find us at teespring backslash lines led by donkeys. Um, so obviously you can follow us on Twitter at lines underscore by you can follow me at jcast 99. You can follow Nick, Nick cast M one and tune in next week for the kind of sort of conclusion. Yeah, we do this of the Soviet Afghan war later.